The reading comes from Mark chapter 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do, they, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, you guys can grab a seat. Good to see you guys this morning. Are you guys excited for some baptisms? We got a few people excited. Well, this is going to be a fun, fun morning. In just 30 minutes, we're going to actually get to see uh, a handful of people who have actually met Jesus, who have been saved by Jesus, now get baptized uh, into the family. And so we're so excited for this. Can we be a people that celebrate that? You know, we want to be a people that are excited when new people meet Jesus. And so uh, that's what I'm asking for you guys today. When we do baptisms, will you celebrate? Will you clap? Will you get excited? Can we do that? All right, all right. Let me, uh, let me pray right now, and then we're going to jump into Mark chapter 8 before we get to baptism. So pray with me. Father, You are so good to continually save, to continually seek and save the lost. God, I pray now um, that through your word that we would see you for who you truly are. Jesus, that you would make yourself known to us in greater ways. Um, And God, would you help us be a family that celebrates, celebrates new people coming to know you today. So as we approach your word, would you give us... um, sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach it and would you shape us would you teach us and would you help draw us into worship we pray in Jesus name amen well uh, as I was growing up my my family consisted of my parents and then I have three older sisters and then me so I'm the only boy and also there's um, you know there's like a four-year gap between them and then a seven-year gap and then me. So I was kind of the oddball a little bit in my family. And uh, it didn't even just extend to being a boy or being younger, but even just in what we liked to do, what we were good at was just very, very different. So for example, all of my sisters, they grew up and they did things like theater and music. You know, they were in orchestras and bands and symphonies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I am not. I am not good at any of that stuff. I'm not musical. I don't do any of that. Uh, but when I was growing up, I would always accompany my parents 
to one of their plays or their symphonies or whatever. And uh, I, I don't want to bash on those. Like, the, it's great. But I will say, as an eight-year-old boy, it's a little tough to sit through one of these things. Because, I mean, I, I had a ton of energy and a very low attention span. So it was annoying for me. It was probably annoying for my parents as I'm like fidgety. But one of the things that I loved about these plays, apart from when they were over and I got to go home, was, I did love one thing about the plays, was the intermission, right? So you get to this intermission part, and I loved it for two reasons. Because first, I could actually get out of my seat and go run around. So I was like a little boy, like I just needed to go burn some energy. But the second thing was a lot of times we'd go to like a, a symphony or something that my sister was playing in. And at the intermission, they would have these free like little cups of like Pepsi or Sprite or something. And I would literally drink like five of them. I would just like pound them and like refill. And I would do that, which did not help me actually sitting through the second act of that. But I loved it. Now, as I've gotten a little bit older and, you know, much more mature and sophisticated, I've gone to some more plays and things with my wife now, and I actually have grown fonder or grown interested in these intermission times for, for another reason. You see, what often happens is when you have the two halves of the, the play, let's say, at the very end of the first half, well, what the playwright will often do is they'll write out uh, some sort of foreshadowing sentence or some sort of foreshadowing action that kind of sums up to some degree the first half, and it tells you that there's something to look for in the second half. So right before the intermission, right at the halfway point, there's something that happens that it's foreshadowing the rest of the play. And it's brilliant because what that does is for the audience, it reorients your mind around what the purpose of the play is. It gives you a little bit of a taste of what you're going to see or expect. And then the whole second half, you actually get to watch it play out. Now, what's interesting is that I think this is kind of like what Mark does in his gospel. You see, we've said this before, but if you're new, the, the gospel of Mark is really split into two halves or two acts, if you will. So you have the first half, the first eight chapters, and then you have the second half. And the first half that we've been looking at this fall for the last couple months is all about the identity of Jesus. It's why we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? That's what Mark is trying to communicate. But what we're going to see in this final scene of the first act is we're going to see this foreshadowing passage. And what this passage is going to do is it's going to answer as the culmination of this question. It's going to fully answer who Jesus is. And it's going to give us a little taste of then what we're going to see in the second half of the book. This passage is kind of the, the hinge on which the gospel of Mark swings in its focus. It doesn't so much from this point on focus on his identity, but it's going to begin to now look at his mission. And so the passage that we see this morning is going to be kind of the hinge. It's going to be this, this final scene in Act 1 of the Gospel of Mark. And coincidentally enough, as Jared said, we're actually taking our own intermission kind of. So if you're like spiritually antsy in Mark, we get to take a break for a couple months. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pick this back up as we move towards Easter and look at the second half. But today, one last time, we're going to look at the first half of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus? So if you're not there in your Bible yet, go Mark chapter 8, which is where we're going to be. And up front, I want to just tell you that the, the culmination, the, the ultimate reality of who Jesus is in this passage we're going to find is that Jesus is the Christ. 
Jesus is the Christ. What we have seen for eight chapters now has been leading us to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I do want to just like get everything, cards on the table here. I realize that when I say that, that may not seem to matter to you, right? Like maybe you've heard that before. Maybe it's a word you don't ever use, and so you don't really know what it means, and you think, okay, that's, we've been leading to that. Like, I don't really know how that matters. But I want you to know that I think to Mark, it's a big deal. It's the point of his book that he's trying to get across that this is who Jesus is. And I think that us believing that deeply, not just knowing it, but believing it, actually has huge implications on our life. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus is the Christ. Now, as we look at this final scene in Act 1, I want us to see three things. Okay, we're going to see three things through this passage. We're going to see the king, we're going to see the king's mission, and the king's followers. All right, the king, the king's mission, and the king's followers. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 27 and read that first section. So starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets, And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Who do you say that I am? After eight chapters, after presumably a number of months, maybe up to a couple of years with these guys, after many miracles, many healings, many teachings... Jesus now approaches his closest followers with the question that we've been circling around for two months now. He he hasn't rushed this moment, but he's now gotten to the point where he's going to check in their hearts and ask, who do you say that I am? Now, we're going to get to the the Peter's confession in a moment. That's the right answer. We're going to get to that. But before we do, I want us to notice two things about this scene that happens first. So first, notice in verse 27 the location of where this is taking place. It says that they are in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now this region was actually a stronghold for uh, the Romans. And, And so the Roman Empire had a firm grasp of this area. The people here gladly lived under Roman rule. They were proud Roman citizens And one of the things that you had to do as a Roman citizen was you had to confess that Caesar is Lord, right? That's part of being a Roman is you have to say Caesar is Lord. He's king. He is the one we live for. He's the the highest authority. And so where they're at right now is deep in this territory. The people around them, these Romans are gladly affirming, yeah, it's about Caesar. He is Lord, But furthermore, as they look around this area, just imagine as you see this area, there's oftentimes uh, statues that are built for Caesar. So there's statues of Caesar's resemblance. And what that shows is that you're a citizen in his land. Okay, so he's pointing to like this is Caesar's land. He's the one who has authority. And on top of that, oftentimes they would place temples to dedicated to different Roman gods. And so the area where Jesus and his disciples are at, 
This is deep in Roman territory. These people are gladly affirming Caesar is Lord's. We, we dedicate our temples to these random gods. And, and this is where Jesus finds himself. And it is in the midst of these shadows of these statues and temples of other gods that Jesus decides to make his true identity known. So hold on to that. We're going to get to that in a second. The second thing I want you to notice is the first question that Jesus asks. So he doesn't come right out to his disciples and say, all right, what do you think? You've seen me do all these miracles. You've seen me heal people. What do you think? No, his first question is, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? What he's getting at is, hey, what's, what's kind of the feel of the culture around us, right? What are, I've been doing miracles. I've been walking around. I've been teaching. What do all these people around me, what, what do they say about me? They reply, well, John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And I think what they're getting at is, you know, John the Baptist, he, they thought, we saw in Mark chapter 6 that he was killed and some people thought that he was reincarnated. And so this was a a mystical, special thing that happened and Jesus is now John the Baptist coming back to life. Others thought that he was Elijah, the great prophet of old. And the, the mystery around Elijah is that in the Old Testament, it actually says that Elijah didn't die. So he just got bodily taken up into heaven. It was weird. They didn't really understand. Some people thought, is he like guarding us, like a guardian angel? Like they were confused on Elijah, but it was written that Elijah would come back. And so some people are like, you're the great prophet Elijah. That's who you are. Others still just say, well, you're just one of the prophets, right? Like Elijah or John the Baptist or Samuel or Isaiah. You're one of those great prophets, In other words, everyone around him thought Jesus was special, right? You could watch this life of Jesus and you knew that he was unique. Everyone could see it. There was something good about what Jesus was doing. And as I thought about this response this week, it kind of struck me that honestly, I don't feel like in our culture, people would respond that differently, Now, I know that no one is probably going to say, you know, hey, he's a reincarnated prophet or something. You know, people won't usually say that, but for the most part, people have pretty good things to say about Jesus. You know, who was Jesus? Well, he was a good man. He was a holy man. He was a religious man. He had good teachings. He was a good religious leader for his people. He's good to kind of get advice from or kind of model your life after. Maybe some of you, when, when you hear this, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? That's what goes through your mind. You think, yeah, he was a great religious man. You know, there's a lot of good stuff in this book about that man. He, he's, you know, he helps me sometimes when I'm in need and I pray and, and something works out. Right? I think most people in our culture, it's few and far between, especially in our city, that too many people are going to think Jesus was wretched, like he was evil or even that he just never existed. Right? You're not going to hear that too much. But what you will often hear is, yeah, he was probably a good religious man, just like many other good religious people. He was a good man, but he's one of the many. And maybe again, for some of you, that's kind of how you view him today. As you hear this, you think, yeah, sure, he was a good man. I get some good advice from the Bible, and I try to live kind of like how he lives. What I want you to see from this section is that I don't think our hearts are that different than the ones that Jesus is interacting with in this story. 
I think this kind of idea of being in a land of worldly kingdoms and having Jesus be just kind of a good person that we look to sometimes, I, I don't think that's too different. I think that oftentimes for us, we live fairly similarly. We live for other worldly kingdoms, and if we can add Jesus onto that, we do. So let me think about it. Let me give you a few examples. One, I think this is probably the most prevalent one and the biggest one, is that oftentimes we simply live for the kingdom of ourselves, right? The kingdom of self, right? And, and so when I say this, what I'm, what I'm asking is, think about what drives you, right? What are the things that, that make you act in the way you do? What's kind of the driving motivation, the driving factors in your life? Now, if we're living for the kingdom of self, if we are kind of the kings of our lives, what oftentimes happens is we just kind of live by what we want, what we think is right, what we want to do, what our desires are, or what we believe in. Now, if Jesus can help with that, like if there's some good teachings about being good to others, great, I'm going to take that because he was a good teacher. Now, there's some things that he says that I don't really like where he tells me to like, you know, sacrifice certain things I don't want to sacrifice. Well, that's not really what it meant, or you know, it's kind of antiquated and outdated, so that doesn't really matter, right? We take kind of what we want from him, but really we just kind of live for the kingdom of ourself. We, our happiness, what we want, that's what's the driving motivator in our life. Think about another one. Uh, I think in our, probably in our church and a lot of us, we live kind of in the kingdom of a career or finances, right? That, that if you think, what drives my actions? How, how am I wired to move? Well, what am I following and submitting to? Oftentimes, it's simply, you know, that next promotion, that little bit more money, that one more investment, that if I just make that, then I'll feel secure. Then I'll have what I've been longing for. And so what we think about how we act and how we live is driven by success in either our careers or through money. It shapes us. And we like to think about things like, well, Jesus said, work hard and, you know, use money wisely. And so even though, you know, we're working 80 hours a week and neglecting everything else, and we're not actually giving anything, we still kind of add Jesus in because some of those teachings help live for the kingdom of finances. Let me give you one more. This is similar, but I think we oftentimes live for the kingdom of success or validation. Oftentimes what we're driven by is success. And oftentimes that is because we want to feel validated. We will do whatever it takes for people to see us as successful. It will change how we post on social media. It will change the houses we live in, the cars we drive, the perception that we give because we want people's stamp of approval. And we submit to that. We act in certain ways. We live in certain ways so that we can seem successful, so we can validate ourselves. If Jesus helps with that, great. If me coming to church every third or fourth week just to kind of please him is good, then great, I'll do that because I want to be validated. I want to be successful. And I think I could go on and on with these kingdoms. We, we all live like this. We all live to strive after things of this world and we submit to those things. And if we can add Jesus on as a good teacher or some good advice or a good role model, great. We're living for an earthly kingdom, and Jesus is just one of the good guys that we get advice from. But Providence, as we go on, that's simply not who Jesus is, and that's not his desire for us. Look in verse 29. He now changes focus, and he says, but who do you say that I am? 
right? He shifts. He says, okay, that's what culture says. That's how culture lives. Well, who do you say that I am? And I love that Peter responds, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, again, that word may be a little bit foreign or just overused for us, but but the word Christ means either a Messiah or uh, an anointed one. That's what the word means. So it's, it's either this Messiah figure or an anointed one. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the idea of being an anointed one um, was, was uh, used for kings. And so to, to bring kings and their kingship in, what they would do is they would anoint the king and his reign and his rule would become through this anointing. And so when the Bible's talking about a Christ to come, what the Bible's talking about is that there's going to be a great king, the great king, the ultimate king, the ultimate anointed one from God would come. And so don't miss this. In the midst of Roman territory, surrounded by people who simply think Jesus is just another good guy or a good self-help plan, Peter says, no, Jesus, you're the king. You are the king that we have been waiting for. You're the Christ, the Christ that has been told from years before. He was the king that would redeem God's people. He was the king that would save them from oppression. He was the king that through his line, he would reign forevermore. Jesus was the Christ. So I gotta ask you, how would you answer that question? That if Jesus was here asking you, hey, who do you say that I am? Would you answer, Jesus, you're the king. You're the Christ that has been told about. You're the ultimate king in our world. There's a a scholar, William Lane, who talks about how this um, idea of being the Christ also carries with it this idea of being, it's a passive term. It's passive in meaning, which means that Jesus, he he argues that Jesus didn't just kind of rise to power and say, I'm going to conquer and I'm going to take this and I'm going to be the king. He says, no, being anointed by God is passive. This was given to him by the Father. This calling to be the Christ, to be the King, was given to him for a purpose, for a mission. And so that gets us to our second point. What's the mission then? Well, what is the mission that he has as the King, as the Christ, as the one who was anointed by God for a special purpose? Well, look at verse 31. We're going to see the King's mission. Verse 31 through 33 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of God. Of man. So what did the king come to do? Right, we get the first human profession of Jesus' identity. Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the king that would be the, the ultimate king. So what was his mission? Jesus says that he came to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Now, let's just kind of zoom out of the story a little bit. Uh, You maybe have heard this story so many times, you're like, okay, yeah, I've heard that. But think about how odd this would be. Like, doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Like, 
kings, they're not, his, his kingdom is being ushered in. He, the king has come. Kings aren't rejected, right? They're revered. Kings don't suffer. They're, they're praised, right? Kings don't die. They reign. That's what they do. This is weird of Jesus. And I love this because Peter, who if we were bold enough, I think we would probably think the same thing. Peter kind of takes him aside, right? And, I, and as I picture this scene, I don't know if this is right, but I picture this scene. It, it seems like Peter's like this attorney who his client is kind of saying too much. Like, have you ever seen those scenes where it's like he's speaking when he shouldn't be speaking? And so Peter kind of grabs him. He's like, hey, 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 like, don't say that. Like, that's too much. People aren't going to like that. Like, look, dude, I just said you're the king. Like, let's take some ground. Like, let's strategize. What are you talking about? You're going to die. Like, that's not right. And I think that would, honestly, to me at least, and maybe to you, that kind of makes sense, Peter's thought, right? Like, nobody wants to follow the guy who is championing, hey, let's all go and die. Like, let's do that, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like a politician who wants to rise to power by dropping out of the race. Like, it's just foolish. It doesn't seem to make sense. And Peter calls him out on this. But Jesus has none of it. He turns Peter around and looking at the disciples who probably are all nodding in agreement like, yeah, Jesus, you're kind of crazy. He says this in verse 33. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Jesus had a different mission from the Father than what Peter was thinking. Peter thought that the, the earthly reign of Jesus, that that would suffice for him. Right, that, that if he could just take care of some of Peter's earthly needs as a king, that would be all he would want. Right, if they just weren't oppressed so much by the Romans, then that's great. Just rise to power and just free us from some of this oppression. Make our lives a little bit simpler. Just lead us like Abraham and Moses and David did. Just, we're not asking too much, Jesus. Just do something simple. I wonder if you've ever come to Jesus like that. Have you ever had those thoughts where you, you just think, man, just, Jesus, if you could just make my life a little bit simpler, that's all I'm asking. Like, I don't want to ask too much, but you know, if you could just please give me a spouse, like, that would be great. Like, that's all I'm asking, Jesus. I will worship you. Like, that's it, right? Or if you could just tame my kids for like two days, Jesus, that's all I need. Just make my life, just allow me to sleep and I will be great. Or, or help me just pass these classes and I will be great. Like, I'm not asking too much, Jesus. Just help change my circumstances a little bit. I think that's kind of the heart of what Peter is thinking here. See, if only some of their earthly circumstances would change, they would be happy with him as king. They didn't want to ask too much. They didn't want to think about anything too crazy. He was just supposed to lead them to happiness. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever had those desires for Jesus that, that don't get too crazy, but just help me out in certain areas of life? Well, Jesus had other plans. He says here that he came and he must suffer. He must be rejected and he must die. So the question I think that we should ask is, well, why must you do that, right? Like, why do you have to die? Why would this king, he could come and just, you know, save his people and redeem them and lead them and his son and his son and his son would be king. Like, this would be great. He could set up his earthly kingdom. And so instead of just giving you some of my thoughts, I want to read to you uh, a passage in the Bible that I think shows why Jesus had to do this. In Isaiah 53, this was written thousands of years before Jesus came, but it was written about 
the Christ, the Messiah that would come. And it tells us that the Christ would have to suffer and die, and it shows us why he must do that. So let me just read bits and pieces of Isaiah 53. In speaking of the Christ, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. For all like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I love the last couple of verses here. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the Christ, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here's what he's saying. This whole passage is pointing to this moment and it's foretelling of one that was going to come. A righteous one, in fact. One that wasn't like all the others. This one was going to be special. He would be sent and empowered by the Lord. This servant of the Lord would pay a penalty that Isaiah 53 says wasn't his to pay. He would pay for a penalty that he didn't accrue. He said that he would die a death that it wasn't his to die. He would be rejected and be despised by the very ones that he came to reach out to and love. And why does he do all this? Why is all this true of the Christ? It says that he does this to make the unrighteous righteous. I love that, that this passage is saying, look, he does all of that. He is rejected, he is despised, he suffers, he dies, so that all of us who are not right with God can become right with God. He does all of this to help us find salvation in God. He is suffering, he is rejected, and he dies for us. So hear me when I say this. The Christ had to suffer because if he didn't, you would. That's just the reality we face, that if the Christ, if Jesus wouldn't have suffered and died, we would. You see, what, what the Bible talks about is that our sins, the penalty for those, are not a, they're not, not a slap on the wrist. It's not just a little offense. It is a big offense against a holy and perfect God. And the penalty for those sins, for you and for I, is an eternity separated from God in hell. And so what Isaiah 53 says is that God would send a righteous one to save the unrighteous ones. That because he would take the sins and the transgressions of us, we could actually live with God. And I love that that Jesus didn't come just to clean your slate. He came to make you alive. Because if you haven't noticed, there's one more piece in that section that, that I haven't mentioned. After it says he's going to die, it says that three days later, he will rise again. See, the reality is for Jesus to actually give you life, he had to fully defeat death. You know, the, the grip of death on us all is freed 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that through him, not only dying for our sins, but rising again to give us life, we can be made right with God. The Christ had to submit to death in order to free us from death. This was the gospel message. This was the king's mission. So the last question that I think we should ask is, what is that What does that mean for us? How do we respond to this? What do we do? And so the last passage here in chapter 8 talks about what it means to be the king's followers. If Jesus is the king who came to suffer, die, and rise again so that all of us could be counted righteous, what do we do? How do we get this? Look at verse 34. He says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory the Father and the holy angels. So here's what Jesus is saying. He says, the call to us this morning is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's our response to this gospel message is that we deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, and in doing so, he says, you get life. You find true Life. You see, the, all the ways that we are disappointed with the worldly kingdoms that we seek after. You know, if we live for the, the kingdom of our jobs and careers and you strive for that promotion and you don't get it, it just lets you down. If you strive for money and you think, if I just get a little bit more money, if that's what drives you, you'll, you never have enough, right? If you are striving for validation from people, every time you get it, it seems so easy to slip through your fingers and you feel that again. It never satisfies, but what Jesus is saying is if you would actually deny those things, if you would quit living for the world, you would actually find the life that you're looking for. That it is when you are actually raised with Christ that your soul becomes alive. And you have to hear this this morning, that that doing that, becoming a Christian, living as a Christian, it does not mean that you just add Jesus to your already set life. It means that Jesus becomes your life. He is the one that is now your life because he's the one who has given you life. So this morning, I want to end by actually and honestly asking you guys, are you following the king? As you read this, this last section is Jesus is saying these words to you this morning. Have you denied yourself? Have you given up your sinful life? Have you taken up the cross? Have you taken up his badge of saying, I am with him and are you following him? Is he the one that is calling the shots that you're submitting to, that you are walking in? And have you found true life in him? I think so often we can get this screwed up in our culture where we think that Jesus or, or the gospel is simply this idea to know. I think this passage is really saying, no, the gospel is a person to follow. That's what it is. That's what it means to actually understand and believe in the gospel is that you now follow Jesus. He is king. He is 
the Christ. And so what we're going to do here in a moment is I'm actually going to have a friend come up and, and share the story of how they found life in Christ. And then we're going to see some baptism, see more people who have said, this is me. Right? That, that the idea isn't that they have worked enough or that baptism has gotten them to the point of salvation, but simply that they've looked at Isaiah 53 and said, yeah, that, uh, that unrighteous person, that's me. Right? And I am putting my faith in the righteous one. And that's all it is. That is where you find salvation. So what I want you to do as you hear this story and as you see the baptisms, would you honestly reflect on your life and consider, are you following the king? Is he the one calling the shots? Because afterwards, after the baptisms, we're still going to take communion this morning. And as you do that, would we come forward with repentant hearts and with hearts who would say, because Jesus has died and rose again, I'm living for him. I give up my old self and I now have found life in Christ. And so, um, Sammy Joe, if you want to come up, you guys can give her a round of applause as she comes up. And Sammy Joe, will you please tell us how Jesus has saved you? Well, hi, guys. Um, so, like he said, I'm Sammy Joe, and all growing up, I went to Sunday school, I went to youth group, I was in confirmation class, FCA, I did it all in high school. Um, I knew the facts, but none of it really was living in my heart. None of it really shaped how I lived my life. Um, and all throughout high school, I loved control. I love knowing what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, every single step along the way. And um, there were a couple girls in high school who never gave up on me. Um, Two of my closest friends from high school, Sydney and Mariah, always invited me to things. They made sure I knew I was loved. They made sure that I was taken care of, even when I didn't want them, even when I rejected them, even when I said no, they never gave up on me. And after I graduated high school... Um, On June 16th, 2016, um, there was an event in Omaha called the O2 Experience, and Mariah was going, and she invited me to go with her. Um, It was put on by Levi Lesko, and he, um, it was a night of prayer and worship and a message, and I was like, okay, I don't work the next day, I'll go. I liked listening to people preach, I liked singing the songs, why not? So about halfway through the night, he started calling out the hearts of the lost souls. He started talking about the feeling of brokenness, the feeling of emptiness, just everything that I could relate to so well. He, it was like he was standing in front of me just saying, hey, Sammy Joe, I know this is you. And um, he called us all to stand up and if we had some sort of stirring in our heart. And I don't remember putting my feet on the ground. I don't remember standing up, but next thing I knew, I'm standing up, and I'm looking down at Mariah, and I'm freaking out because I didn't want to be standing up. I didn't want all the attention. I didn't want to be standing up, and then she's like, everything's going to be okay, so I kept standing, and then a couple minutes later, he called us all to the front of the room and the front of the stage, and panic mode set in. I did not want to leave. I'm like, I'm just going to sit back down. Like, this, this isn't my thing. Like, I'm just going to sit back down. And Mariah looked at me, and she said, no, like, go, go up there, see what he has to say. And so I went up to the front of the room, and he started praying over us um, and explaining the gospel to us in a way that I've never heard it before. I knew the gospel, but 
something about how he was saying it and what he was saying about it and how I can go from feeling empty to feeling alive, feeling broken and feeling put back together. It was just speaking to me in a whole new way, and I just started bawling. I was bawling like a little baby, like shoulder-racking sobs. And after that moment, he took us into the back room, and they gave us a start Bible. And I had a Bible at home, but I, it was a New Testament Bible. And so then I went home, and I started reading the Bible. And a couple months later, I moved to Omaha, and... Um, Sydney kind of just took me up under her wing. She brought me to City Light, brought me to City Light U, introduced me to so many people. I remember the first night I came to City Light U, I walked in the doors, and Hannah Brockemeyer was the first one that ever saw me, and she just runs up to me and gives me the biggest hug ever, and it's just like, hi, like, I'm Hannah, and, um, like, now she's one of my best friends, and I met Jordan throughout the whole, the whole process, and she started discipling me. She taught me how to read my Bible. She taught me how to pray. She just taught me so many things about myself that I didn't even know I knew about myself. And um, all of these people that have come into my life over the past year and a half, and even back in high school, um, they are not because of anything I did. They are purely gifts of God. They are people who God has placed in my life to bring me into his kingdom. And the change in my heart over the past year and a half has just been amazing. I no longer desire to go out with my friends, to hang out with the wrong crowd, to do the things that they're doing. I love absolutely everything about where I am right now. And my life is completely changed, not because of anything I did, but because of Jesus's sacrifice and the reason he died on the cross for us. And so That's why today I'm getting baptized to just show my love for Jesus and show my sins being washed away and becoming anew.